Hey, this is Dave DeCamp from Antiwar.com. This is Antiwar News for Thursday, May 25th, 2023. All right, the first story at the top of Antiwar.com today, Ukrainian intelligence says it's trying to kill Putin. So this article is from Kyle Anzalone. The Ukrainian intelligence service says that it is attempting to kill Russian President Vladimir Putin. A high-ranking official admitted to actively plotting the Russian leader's assassination after a recent drone attack on the Kre- on the Kremlin. So this is Vadim Skibin- Skibitsky. He is the deputy head of Ukraine's main intelligence directorate, which is their military intelligence. And he said this in an interview with Velt, the German publication. He said that Putin is noticing that we are getting closer and closer to him because, uh, and he said that he's number one on the kill list because he coordinates and decides what happens. So the Ukrainian intelligence official claimed that his agency had failed to kill Putin because he stays holed up. Skubitsky suggested that another attempt could be made soon as the Russian leader is now, as he put it, beginning to stick his head out. So Ukrainian officials have admitted to previously attempting to kill Putin. This has happened, uh, you know, they're not afraid to say these things. Uh, Kirillo Budinov, who is the head of Ukraine's military intelligence, he said in an interview with Ukrainska Pravda that they tried to kill Putin in March 2022. He said there was an attempt and it didn't work. Uh, but, you know, this latest, uh, these latest comments come a few weeks after that drone attack on the Kremlin. Two unmanned aerial vehicles were downed over the Kremlin. And although the Russian leader was not present at the complex, the Kremlin, uh, you know, they consider, the Russians consider it an attack on Putin, an attempt on his life. So, it, you know, all sorts of uh, concerns for escalation there. And Kyle pointed out something uh, that I had forgotten about. So Naftali Bennett, the former Israeli prime minister who was the prime minister of Israel when Russia invaded, he recently disclosed, I guess it's been a few months now since he said this, that he, you know, he was mediating between Zelensky and Putin early on in the war. And he said that ultimately the U.S. and its allies uh, blocked his attempts at mediating. But he also said, you know, during those negotiations, he got an agreement from he got Putin to agree to say, you know, that he won't try to kill Zelensky. Uh, You know, so now you wonder if if they're really making attempts on Putin's life and they're talking about it. I mean, wouldn't that make it a possibility that maybe the Russians will try to kill Zelensky? Um, You know. I don't just don't understand the strategy here unless maybe that's what these intelligence officials uh, want. Um, and there has been calls inside Russia to kill Zelensky following the drone attack on the Kremlin, not from, you know, Putin or anybody, but Medvedev uh, has mentioned it. He is the deputy head of Russia's Security Council and former president of Russia. And I know some members of the state Duma have called for it as well. So you got to figure, you know, if you see comments like this and if there are more attempts on the Kremlin, uh, you know, maybe they will take some kind of action against Zelensky. 
The next one here is related. U.S. officials say that Ukraine was behind the drone attack on the Kremlin. This is not a surprise, but the U.S. is saying it. And it is in the form of uh, anonymous U.S. officials speaking to the New York Times. They are saying that they believe the drone attack on the Kremlin that took place earlier this month was likely carried out by one of Ukraine's special military or intelligence units. So these officials said that they did not know which Ukrainian unit carried out the attack or if Zelensky was aware of the operation. The report came, again, I just mentioned uh, that other story after you have this Ukrainian intelligence official saying that they're trying to kill Putin. That And uh, you know later in the day, this New York Times report was published. So the Kremlin drone attack was part of Ukraine's broad covert campaign inside Russia, which includes assassinations and attacks in Russian regions near the Ukrainian border. So the U.S. officials who spoke with the Times said that they believe Ukraine has been responsible for, uh, Ukraine was responsible for the killing of uh, Daria Dugina, who was the daughter of Alexander Dugin, the Russian philosopher, and also the killing of Vladlen Tatarsky, who was a Russian blogger and war correspondent. He was killed in a cafe bombing in Petersburg. So these officials are saying, yeah, you know, some Ukrainian intelligence or security agency is behind these killings, which I think is obvious. But again, uh, now the U.S. is kind of admitting it. The U.S. officials also believe that the Ukrainians are behind the frequent attacks inside Russian towns near the border, including the raid on Monday that was launched in Belgorod. And that was launched with U.S. armored vehicles, as we know. Uh, so according to these officials, they don't think that Zelensky signs off on each covert action, and they suspect that the Ukrainian president and his top aides have set the broad parameters of the covert campaign, leaving decisions about who and what to target to the security services and their operatives. And Ukraine's attacks inside Russia risk a big escalation of the war, especially because Moscow believes that these operations are being supported by the U.S. At least that's what they're saying. After the drone attack on the Kremlin, Moscow said that the decision to carry out such actions are being made in Washington. So you have Russia, you know, out, you know, out in the open, blaming the U.S. for an attack on the Kremlin. I mean, it has all sorts of implications for escalation, and these things seem to be ramping up. These attacks inside Russia. Um, so who knows what this what this could potentially lead to here. All right, the next one here. The U.S. says that it's probing reports of U.S. equipment used in Belgorod. So Biden administration officials have said that the U.S. is looking into reports of U.S. military equipment being used in a cross-border raid that was launched from Ukraine into Russia's Belgorod region. Both Russia and the militias that launched the attack said that U.S. armored vehicles were used in the raid, but the Biden administration is claiming that these reports are not confirmed. So this is State Department spokesman Matthew Miller. He said, quote, we are looking into those reports, but as I've said, we have not reached any conclusions about them, end quote. Miller refused to say what potential consequences there would be for Ukraine if U.S. equipment was used in the attack or if there would be any consequences at all. Uh, you know, he didn't offer any kind of, uh, you know, idea of what might happen if, uh, you know, Ukraine is using American weapons inside Russian territory, despite 
all these claims that the U.S. Uh, doesn't want them to. So White House National Security Council spokesman John Kirby, he also said that the U.S. was looking into these reports, and he said that the U.S. has made clear to Ukraine not to use U.S.-made equipment for attacks inside Russia. The Kremlin said Wednesday that the use of U.S. military equipment in a cross-border raid in Russia's Belgorod region demonstrates the West's growing involvement in the war. So Miller, the State Department spokesman, he also claimed that the U.S. has not come to a conclusion as to who carried out the attacks. And we know that two groups of Russians who volunteered to fight for Kiev took credit for the raid, and that's the Freedom of Russia Legion and the Russian Volunteer Corps. And as I've you know mentioned quite a few times, because I think it's uh, it's kind of a big deal that the Russian Volunteer Corps apparently, according to Western media, you know this isn't Russia saying this. This is I got this from the Financial Times, and it's it's reported all over the place that this group, the Russian Volunteer Corps, are openly neo-Nazi, and their leader uh, is you know a white considered a white nationalist neo-Nazi. So those are the type of people that are using. American-made equipment. And um, Russia has described the attackers as a Ukrainian sabotage group. They said the Russian military killed 70 people in the, that, that attacked that day. So Russia, again, I, I think I mentioned this yesterday, the rhetoric on this has, I think, been toned down a little bit, which is a little concerning, um, unless I'm missing something. But it just I haven't seen them specifically really call out uh, you know, the fact that U.S. equipment was used, you know, the Kremlin commented on it, but it's because they were asked by a reporter, you know, to comment on it. Um, so maybe they're still kind of investigating it to come out with like a big uh, um, statement on it. I'm not sure. Um, so again, Russia is claiming that they killed 70 people that attacked, but according to a political representative for the Freedom of Russia Legion that spoke to France 24, uh, he denied that any of the group's fighters were killed, but he did say that they got the green light from Ukraine to launch this raid. They said that they're part of the Ukrainian military, but the story is, is that they, they were doing this on their own. Somehow Ukraine wasn't involved, even though, as this guy's saying, they are part of Ukraine's military. They're armed by Ukraine. Um, so, you know, it seems like a very kind of weak attempt to try to distance Kiev from this attack. Uh, all right. So the next one here, Russian warship attacked near the Bosphorus Strait. So Moscow said Wednesday that a Russian warship protecting pipelines in the Black Sea was attacked by unmanned Ukrainian speedboats near the Bosphorus Strait, which is far from Russian and Ukrainian territory. The Russian Defense Ministry said that the naval ship Ivan Kurs repelled the attack by three unmanned watercraft in an incident that took place about 87 miles northeast of the Bosphorus and within Turkey's exclusive economic zone, and an economic zone extends about 230 miles from a country's coast. Uh, so if you're watching the video here, you see this is the Black Sea. This red arrow is the Bosphorus Strait, which is how you know you can get in and out of the Black Sea, and Turkey controls it. They said they're about 87 miles northeast. So we'll put it somewhere around here uh, off Turkey's coast. Uh, again, this is far from Russia and Ukraine. And I think this is a, a, an example, this attack, of how this war could potentially 
uh, spread elsewhere in the region. You know, there has been, uh, Ukraine has used these unmanned speedboats, these drone boats before to attack Russian vessels, but never this far from Russian or Ukrainian ports. And a Russian defense ministry spokesman said that the Russian warship was deployed to the area to protect the Turkish stream and blue stream gas pipelines. They carry gas from Russia to Turkey. And he said that the deployment came in response to the bombing of the Nord Stream natural gas pipelines in the Baltic Sea. So after that, they sent out ships to protect other uh, underwater pipelines. All right. So the next one here, Prigozhin says that 20,000 Wagner fighters were killed in Bakhmut. So the, uh, Russia's Wagner Group chief, Yevgeny Prigozhin, said in an interview posted on Telegram Wednesday that 20,000 of his fighters were killed in the 224-day Battle of Bakhmut. Prigozhin said half of those who died in the brutal battle were convicts that he recruited from prison. This is according to uh, a interview that he did on Telegram. It was a video that was posted on a Telegram channel. He said, quote, throughout the entire operation, I recruited 50,000 prisoners, of which about 20% died. Exactly the same number died as those who signed up through a contract, end quote. Prigozhin announced over the weekend that his forces had fully captured Bakhmut and said they will hand over their positions to regular Russian forces on May 25th, which is Thursday. His comments offer a rare glimpse into how many people may have been killed on the battlefield in Ukraine, as both Moscow and Kiev have kept a tight lid on casualty figures. So it's not clear yet. You know, it's going to be hard to find out. Who knows when we're actually going to know as how many Ukrainians were killed in the fighting for Bakhmut, but the number is expected to be massive. Kiev was pouring fresh recruits into the battle, and Ukrainian soldiers fighting on the front line told media outlets that they were being sent into the meat grinder with little support, training, or ammunition. So toward the end of the Battle of Bakhmut, Prigozhin stepped up his criticism of Russian military leadership and accused Moscow of not providing his forces with enough ammunition. In this interview that was posted on Wednesday, uh, Prigozhin continued his criticism of Moscow saying that the goal of demilitarizing Ukraine had backfired, basically saying Ukraine has all this new gear uh, from NATO and they're getting trained up on all this new advanced military equipment. And, you know, if you see from NATO's plans, you know, uh, things that we've been going over a lot lately, um, you know, they have long-term plans. They want to get them these new, this new air force, uh, you know, and they really want them to just be more of a NATO bulwark on Russia's border than they already are. Uh, all right. So the next one here, Russia China ties at an unprecedented high due to U.S. pressure. So this is Russia's prime minister, Mikhail Mishustin. He said Wednesday that cooperation between Russia and China has reached an unprecedented high due to pressure that both nations are facing from the West. So he said this while he was in Beijing in talks with China's premier, Li Chang, he said, and this again is Mishustin, the Russian prime minister. He said, quote, today, relations between Russia and China are at an unprecedented high level. They are characterized by mutual respect of each other's interests, the desire to jointly respond to challenges, which is associated with increased turbulence in the international arena 
and the pattern of sensational pressure from the collective West, end quote. So during his visit, Russian and Chinese officials signed agreements to boost cooperation on trade and sports. Trade between the two nations has soared in recent years, and it spiked even more after the U.S. and its allies began imposing energy sanctions on Russia following the invasion of Ukraine. As a result of the U.S.-led sanctions blitz, China is now Russia's top energy customer. Russia, Russian energy sales to China are expected to rise by 40% in 2023 compared with 2022. So they're still really rapidly rising. And um, they are expecting trade between Russia and China to reach a record high of $200 billion in 2023, up from $190 billion in 2022 so they're expected to hit that mark this year and it's just an example i mean it's so obvious that you know these sanctions are gonna if countries are both facing sanctions the u.s is trying to cut them off from the global financial system obviously they're going to look for alternatives and when you do it to two big countries uh like china which has a huge population and russia which is a pretty big landmass with lots of resources i mean it's just a very obvious result of this these sanctions and kind of a natural partnership that's forming um you know the same thing with iran and venezuela were trading gas for gold that really made the, the u.s mad but of course they were they're both under basically economic blockades um all right so the next one here centcom lied about syria drone strike that killed a civilian so confirming basically what i figured from when they launched this drone strike uh, CNN reported Tuesday that U.S. Central Command claimed that they killed a senior al-Qaeda leader in a May 3rd drone strike when they announced it on Twitter, even though they had no confirmation of who died. So the victim of the drone strike turned out to be 56-year-old Latfi Hassan Misto, who is a father of 10, who was killed while herding his sheep in the Idlib countryside. Relatives and neighbors said he had no affiliation with al-Qaeda and terrorism experts told the Washington Post there was no evidence that he did. So the announcement made by CENTCOM on Twitter said, uh, basically, uh, they put this kind of strange announcement out. Uh, they didn't put a usual press release out. They just put kind of a picture of a press release on Twitter that said that they killed a senior al-Qaeda leader in northwest Syria and that they will provide more information as details become available. But they never did. They didn't give a name. And usually, you know, the press releases for drone strikes are longer than this. So I immediately knew something was fishy with it. And there were reports of that, you know, indications that it killed a civilian immediately. Um, you know, I had a story that day that said that. Um, so unnamed Pentagon officials told CNN that the announcement was ordered by General Eric Kurilla, who's the commander of CENTCOM. One official said that he, he, uh, that his subordinates urged him to hold off on the tweet until they knew who they killed. Although two other officials denied that that happened, but either way they're saying, you know, they're all saying that they put out the announcement before they had any confirmation. And the command still claims that it does not know if they targeted a civilian. They did not launch an investigation on the strike until May 15th, despite the fact that evidence surfaced immediately that a civilian was killed, and they had reporters telling them that. I called them up and, and said it on May 4th, 
And they told me, oh, we're going to be coming out with more information on that soon. And they never did. And then they, uh, I didn't hear from them after that. CENTCOM's deception follows a familiar pattern as the U.S. military is notorious for undercounting civilian casualties or lying about them. There is also a clear history of U.S. drone strikes killing civilians despite them being framed as precision strikes. So I mentioned, you know, back in 2015, documents leaked by whistleblower Daniel Hale revealed that during a five-month period between 2012 and 2013, 90% of the people killed by U.S. drones were civilians. I mean, that's a shocking statistic, staggering. And of course, you know, that hasn't changed much uh, as we see civilians are still being killed and Hale is uh, paying for it, uh, you know, for revealing that information. He's currently serving a 45-month sentence for revealing that information. I think he was sentenced in 2021. Yeah, so he's still got got a ways to go. Um, so again, it's kind of what we figured happened uh, when that drone strike was first reported, but this is just confirmation that, yes, they, again, lied about killing a civilian. All right, the next one here is from The Intercept. The CIA does not know if Israel plans to bomb Iran. So whether Israel's escalating threats of war with Iran over its nuclear program are saber-rattling or something more serious is a mystery even to the CIA, according to a portion of a top-secret intelligence report leaked on the platform Discord earlier this year. The uncertainty about the intentions of one of the U.S.'s closest allies calls into question the basis of the ironclad support for Israel publicly espoused by the Biden administration. So this report reveals an undisclosed military exercise conducted by Israel. Uh, It says that on February 20th, Israel conducted a large-scale air exercise. And this intelligence report, which was produced by the Office of the Director of National Intelligence, says that the exercises were probably to simulate a strike on Iran's nuclear program and possibly to demonstrate Jerusalem's resolve to act against Iran. There have been several joint U.S. military exercises in recent months, including one proudly billed by the Pentagon as the largest in history. That was back in January. So this report reads, uh, this is the quote based on them saying they don't know what Israel's planning to do. Uh, It says, quote, CIA does not know Israel's near-term plans and intentions. Netanyahu probably calculates Israel will need to strike Iran to deter its nuclear program and faces a declining military capability to set back Iran's enrichment program, end quote. So basically just saying they're not sure if they should, how seriously they should take Iran's threats and practice uh, of bombing Iran. Uh, so I thought that was pretty interesting. And again, this, so this comes after, uh, again, this is based on a document back in February. The intelligence assessment was dated February 23rd. Um, so they didn't know then, and now it's May. And recently, you know, we saw the U.S. say, asked Israel if they wanted to do some joint military planning with, uh, you know, concerning Iran. Maybe that's, this is part of the reason why they did, because they're not really sure what their plans are. Could be related to that. All right, the next one here, uh, this is according to a report from El Mayadeen. And it says that the U.S. eyes a new military base in Iraq. So the United States is widely monitoring one of the western regions of Iraq's Al-Anbar to build its second military base in the province after the Ain al-Assad base 
And this is according to an Iraqi security source as cited by local media outlets. So the media suggested that the U.S. chose this reason to construct its military bases due to its large oil and gas fields, as well as other mines. According to these reports, the area is one of Iraq's completely safe regions and has not witnessed any attacks for a long time. Informed Iraqi sources had previously revealed that the U.S. occupation forces are not planning to withdraw from Iraq and are attempting to expand the Ain al-Assad base by obtaining lands around it. Um, so I know that you know the U.S. does not want to leave Iraq. I believe they have 2,500 troops there. And many people inside Iraq are against their presence. The U.S. presence, a lot of people in the government. Currently, the prime minister says he said he's in favor of it. You know, the U.S. has a lot of leverage over him, over the Iraqi government, because they control their access to their dollar reserves. And it's uh, something that Jason Ditz covered recently um, that I didn't really understand. Uh, and it is that you know the U.S. has that's a big part of the reason why the U.S. can still kind of dictate to this Iraqi government, even though there's so many people that do not want them there. Uh, but that is it for the news for today. Go check out our viewpoints. One from Jonathan Cook. British warmongering is driving Europe toward catastrophe in Ukraine. One from Dan Kovalik and Rick Sterling. Journey to St. Petersburg, Moscow, and Crimea. Uh, go check that out. Uh, I'm not logged in, but that's about uh, re their recent trip to the region. One from William Hartung. Arms Industries price gouging shows how greed trumps national interest. That's over at Responsible Statecraft. One from Joseph Solis Mullen, a few thousand years of Chinese foreign policy in a nutshell. And our spotlight is from Ted Galen Carpenter, the foreign policy establishment's love affair with Zelensky knows no bounds. That's at the American Conservative. Oh, that is it. Sorry, I've been holding back yawns this entire episode. I hope I didn't sound too tired. It was just a long day today. Um, but you could always support the show at antiwar.com slash donate. You can like and subscribe on YouTube and comment and share it. If you're on Twitter, I've been posting it on Twitter. You could retweet it, you know, tell your friends about the show and antiwar.com in general. Um, I almost just said I'll be back after the weekend, but I got one more day, and that is tomorrow. So I'll talk to you then. Thanks for listening. <laughs>